Hello and welcome to episode number 167 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. And this episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, February 9th, 2015. This is the last in a series of pre-recorded episodes of the podcast uh, before my trip to Bolivia. And at this point, uh, I have been in Bolivia for several weeks, in fact, almost a month, um, but I had quite a few interviews in the archive to share with you, and they've all been really great, and I think you're going to really enjoy this interview as well. This episode of the podcast deals with issues of forestry and forest management, and our guest will tell you more about that. But before we go there, I would like to encourage you to donate to the Agro Innovations podcast. You can do so by clicking on the donate button on agroinnovations.com. And if you have donated in the past several weeks and I have not said thank you, just remember that uh, all these episodes have been pre-recorded. So I have not, uh, while recording this, I have not known about your donation, but I will uh, get around to thanking you at some point. Hopefully I have at this point had the opportunity to either develop some material or test out the development of some material from Bolivia. Uh, both testing the internet connection and the quality of my technology. And you should check back to the uh, podcast page either next Monday or the following week. Um, I probably will wait a week from uh, the usual release date to release the next episode so that not too much time goes in between episodes. So now enjoy my interview with Carlton Owen. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona, and I am with Carlton Owen. And Carlton is with the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities, and he's based in South Carolina. Carlton Owen, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. Glad to be with you. So, Carlton, tell us a little bit about the endowment that you work for and your role with the endowment, and maybe a little bit about... um, the history of this organization, how it got started, and and why. Okay, glad to do that. The U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities is a public charity, a nonprofit. We have been in existence for eight years, and like most organizations, we have a very unique uh, genesis. We were created out of a trade settlement, a long-running dispute between the U.S. and Canadian governments and forest products industries over softwood lumber imports and exports. And in late 2002, things got so bad that the U.S. placed countervailing duties on imports of lumber coming in from Canada. And between 2002 and 2006, while those duties were in place, there were about $5.5 billion assessed and maintained in a coffee can at the border. And when the Harper government came into power in Canada and the Bush uh, administration was in place here in the U.S., uh, the teams wanted to sit down and talk about things they could do together, and one of the issues that kept bubbling to the top was we need to do something about this softwood lumber uh, issue because uh, we're the two largest trading partners in the world. Almost all of that trade, somewhere in the range of $1.5 billion every day of the year going back and forth goes without any issue. But softwood lumber has been one of those issues for decades that has been problematic. 
So the two governments sat down, and they basically, Frank, uh, did a political fix, if you will. They said, we're going to uh, resolve this. And um, what they did is they took the $5.5 billion that had been collected, uh, reimbursed it to the Canadian government. The Canadian government then uh, divided the pot into multiple pieces, took uh, $4.5 billion and reimbursed it to the companies that had uh, paid it in. And the other $1 billion, they uh, broke into three pieces. $500 million of it went to settle a number of lawsuits, uh, mostly by U.S. companies suing uh, over the, the trade agreements of the past. $50 million went to create a new organization called the Binational Softwood Lumber Council, made out of, uh, comprised of six Canadians and six Americans, with the objective of trying to build bridges and promote growth of markets and hopefully uh, prevent a um, the second version of the blow-up. And then the remaining $450 million was designated for what were called meritorious initiatives. Initially in that process, the U.S. endowment was to be created to receive all $450 million as a one-time endowment. As things worked through the pipeline, the administration uh, had a shift in its policy and it divided that $450 million into three pots. Uh, $100 million went to Habitat for Humanity International for certain communities and reimbursement of certain wood products in designated communities across the U.S., uh, another $150 million went as an endowment to the American Forest Foundation in Washington, D.C., the Tree Farm People and Project Learning Tree. And then the final $200 million came to the newly created U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities, and our money was the only true endowment, meaning that it, we are restricted. It is a perpetual endowment and we're restricted to usually using only interest in earnings to advance our mission. I know that's a long answer, Frank, and I'll go to the second part of the question, and that's sort of around what are we supposed to do with that money. We operate as a public charity in the U.S., and we have two primary purposes, if you sum them up in layman's language, is to keep forests as forests and to keep them healthy, and secondly, to advance family wage jobs in rural forest-rich communities. So we have somewhat of a, um, a dual mission in forest conservation, keeping working forests on the landscape, and then creating economic development tied to those forests to benefit the communities uh, across the country. Well, that's, that's interesting, and I think that now uh, we can really get into the nuts and bolts of this. One thing that occurs pops into my mind as I hear you describe the mission of the organization is it almost feels like mission impossible and not that the work can't be done but the reason I say that is because there's so much diversity in this country in these forested communities in the ecosystems in the cultures in the socioeconomics how do you deal with that um, considering your mandate is for the entire United States well, it, it, it is a huge challenge, and it's a frustration. And here's even the sadder part of it, Frank, is that the U.S. endowment, when it was created with a $200 million endowment, instantly became the largest for, uh, nonprofit in America dedicated to working forest conservation. Now, when you think about other nonprofit sectors, 
and you a few names like Gates and Buffett and Ford and Kellogg come to mind, $200 million is not even rounding era. So we have responsibility and a mission to address one-third of the landscape of America, that one-third that's covered by trees, and to do it with a relatively small pot of money. So what we have to do, obviously, is be very targeted in what we do. And we, our board, uh, which is a um, body of independent volunteers, uh, they are not compensated for their service, uh, came together in late 2006, began charting our course and our actions. And, and one of the things we really worked on was we had to be very clear about what we would not do and one of the things we said we would not do is we're not going to duplicate what others are doing. We're going to focus our efforts on those things that others can't or won't do and take the uh, the, the higher risk road to uh, try to identify breakthrough issues that have the potential to have systemic and transformative change that is also sustainable. And I'll give you one specific example of that. Frank, because again, you, if you take the endowment in a normal year, and of course, through our entire history, we've not had a normal year because we were created in funding uh, and funded just at the onset of the Great Recession. So it's been a very tough time. We had huge losses in our corpus and yet had the responsibility to build a credible program to advance our mission. One of the very first things we did was studied what American agriculture had done to address growth of markets. And uh, we contracted for and did a study looking at what are called USDA research and promotion programs. Uh, the common language for them are called checkoffs. And when you say this to somebody, most folks look at you and don't know what you're talking about. And yet every American sees something from a checkoff every day. If they see something that says beef it's what's for dinner or got milk or the incredible edible egg, those are the public faces of commodity checkoffs put in place by those commodity producers to do two things. One, to conduct research on, the, on their products or their markets, and secondly, to, to promote those markets. Well, we had never taken advantage of that uh, in the forest product sector. So we did our study and found that, yes, we could use those same tools in the forest products arena. And the endowment funded a, um, an initiative to determine how that could be possible, brought together um, about 50 CEOs from the softwood lumber sector as a starter and shared a vision with them of what checkoffs could do for this sector if they were to be implemented and to be sustained over the long term. And uh, I, I, while there was a lot of opposition, a lot of concern, a lot of angst early on, I'm very proud to say that we sit here today and we have two checkoffs in place and two more under consideration. The first checkoff was adopted in 2011 for softwood lumber. It generates about $15 million a year, led by a group of industry leaders appointed by the Secretary of Agriculture, but this is an industry program operated under USD oversight to address research and promotion and growth of that sector. Uh, we then worked with the paper and paper-based packaging industry a, a couple of years later and effective, I think it came in in July of 14, so it just is getting its feet on the ground. Paper and paper-based 
paper and paper-based packaging industry also adopted a checkoff, and it'll generate about $25 million a year. So for the first time ever, we've got about $40 million at the national level for these two particular commodities, softwood lumber and certain paper and paper-based packaging products, to do research and promotion to grow their markets. We're now working with the hardwood industry, both hardwood lumber producers and hardwood plywood producers, about the possibility of a checkoff there. And we're just beginning early work with wood energy producers who use um, forest residuals to produce energy about the possibility there. The vision we shared with these CEOs that we gathered in Seattle in late 2009, I believe it was, was that what would happen if someday there were multiple checkoffs, each designed around a specific product line, but that each of those checkoffs then used 70 or 80% of their funds to deal with their product, but then they kicked over into a common bucket a portion, maybe 10 to 20%, to address the basic resource that is common across all of those sectors, the tree and the forest. So we're hopeful as time goes forward that vision will play out. We're uh, We've made significant progress over the last five or six years with two checkoffs now in place. Uh, I will uh, remind you that we were the catalyst for those, but we have no role in them. We're, we're not on the boards. The money doesn't come to us. They're totally independent. But that's an example of the kind of activity that the endowment has taken on to do something that others couldn't do, to put the resources to it, to weather the heat, if you will, and finally bring together a cadre of people that shared the vision and to work with those people to carry it to fruition. Well, I'm glad you uh, talked about some of the work that you're doing with Wood Biomass Energy because originally that's how you and I got in touch. And it's uh, you know an, an issue I've featured just recently on this podcast and something I want to discuss in more detail. Um, one of the things that I have noted about the Wood Biomass Arena in the state of New Mexico, at least, and I'm sure this varies across the country, but certainly here, um, the, it's everybody who works in that arena is somehow tied to the government. So they work for state forestry or they work for the Forest Service or they are private consultants, but most of their income comes from, you know, government contracts or, uh, you know, working on Forest Service lands, that type of thing. So my question inevitably becomes, is is this a real market? I mean, it feels like uh, sort of a, a centralized, central planning kind of market, and I don't see a whole lot of dynamic entrepreneurial activity going around uh, in this wood biomass market and seems to rely heavily on subsidies. Well, well, let's put the context of the need in place first and then try to go down that track first. America has, um, as I say, about one-third of the landscape is covered by trees. About 700 million acres of that is in some type of management. And as we have lost markets, and um, it's pretty stark when you think of the fact that we're the largest pulp and paper producer in the world, but since 1990, more than 40% of the pulp and paper mills in the United States have been closed. Now, part of that is age. Uh, many of those mills were 100 years old, and uh, a lot of it is uh, competitive pricing. But then other parts of it are the shift in demand. Uh, that We are seeing that electronic media is having an impact on paper. 
newsprint has been on a rapid decline for a number of years. Printing and writing paper, your your xerographic type papers have been on a significant decline. There have been increases in some other arenas, packaging, uh, not surprisingly, with uh, all of the online shopping, and then tissue-type products or, or health care products, especially for an aging population like ours. So you, you've had the industry be disrupted, but that disruption has played out not just in the markets for those products, it's played out in the outlets for a forest landowner, whether that be a public landowner or a private landowner, to sell their trees. Well, almost without fail, no matter what the economy is, you've got a good market for your high-value trees, your saw logs. The big challenge for landowners and land managers is, is what do you do with your low-value material? And if it costs you money to remove that low-value material, especially in the case of private landowners, they're not likely to do it. So as that low-grade material continues to um, accrue in the forest, the forest becomes less resilient, becomes more susceptible to disease and wildfire and pests, and you have more forest losses. This is exactly what we see on the public lands. We did a great job for decades of fighting fires. Smokey did a great job of explaining to us that fires weren't a good thing. And, of course, he was talking about wildfires. What he was unable to talk about was that we needed, and certain fire-based ecosystems of the West and the South, uh, that we needed fires because the forests were fire-dependent. And by keeping those out, we were we were changing the ecology of the forest to the point that we put them at risk. So now we as a society are left with these unhealthy forests. Some estimates uh, suggest that as high as uh, over half of our forests need some type of treatment to address these types of issues. And right now, with very few markets, we're left to doing it through a subsidized approach. And we as taxpayers are paying anywhere from $500 to $20,000 an acre on some federal lands to go in and do understory treatments to make the forest more open and to make them look and act more like they would naturally. So when the fires do come, they're not catastrophic fires. The potential of woody biomass, which is, you know, we've got to realize, number one, it was our original energy. Uh, sun, the sun was here and early man used the sun, but the first energy that was captured and used for humans was fire. So some people look at it and they think it's an ancient out of, uh, out of time type energy. Well, we're not talking about great grandpa's energy. We're talking about modern uses of wood to make energy products. And there's a wide range of products that can be made out of wood to create energy. We obviously know that you can just cut the tree down and chop it up into blocks, and uh, I have uh, we heat our home by wood, and so we use round wood, uh, firewood. Been here for thousands of years, and it'll be here for thousands more years. Or you can take that uh, raw material and you convert it into a more dense product, which is happening especially here in the southeast where uh, wood pellets are being created. That was a product that was actually invented here in North America back in the early 70s in response to OPEC, but now is seeing a real um, reemergence as European countries have made their commitments to shift away from fossil fuels. And so with certain subsidies there, they've created a viable market, 
And there are people in the U.S. that are taking advantage of that market by creating uh, wood pellet facilities where they densify the raw material into a pellet that looks like a chicken feed pellet, bundle it up uh, either in uh, uh, cargo ships or containers and ship it to uh, Britain and Denmark. Um, And that's very controversial to some people. Uh, But one of the reasons that industry has emerged is not just because of the European uh, subsidy, it's because of the closure of many of the pulp and paper mills in the southeast that made those small diameter, what some of which would have been pulpwood trees in the past, and lower grade material even below that grade uh, available uh, economically to create pellets. And then, of course, you can go on up the food chain and you can create uh, ethanols and butanols, which are liquid fuels, or one of the ones we're beginning to do some pretty significant work on is do, again, a very old technology, torrefaction, which is roasting of wood, somewhat like creating charcoal, but doing it in an oxygen-deprived environment. And then you create a very energy-dense product that looks and acts like coal, but doesn't have all the environmental downsides of coal. And tests show that if you use it as a substitute or a replacement for a percentage of coal in a coal-fired plant, you increase the uh, environmental quality, reduce the negative environmental footprint of that uh, facility. But the beauty is by trying to find these markets that tie to wood to energy, the promise is that we maybe can go from this subsidized approach of having to use taxpayer dollars to enhance forest health to a market-based approach that creates markets for these low-value products that then they can either come off at break-even, so the landowner or the land manager doesn't have to pay anything, or even better, potentially, at a profit, and that becomes sustainable. The markets we have right now, as you said in the opening, Frank, are not sustainable. The American public at some point is going to say we're spending too much to try to uh, rehab these forests So we've got to invest our time and energy in finding market pools that allow the landowners and land managers to get those forests back in health, to make them more resilient, and to make them more fire resistant. So um, in the meantime, we're going to have to rely on public funding and, you know, nonprofit organizations. And I mean, I, I wonder where are the entrepreneurs here? I mean, it, it feels like um, th- that if, if this was such a great market opportunity, then I would imagine that there would be, you know, sort of a Silicon Valley type renaissance around this. And yet uh, the silence is almost deafening. I mean, it's mostly uh, people in government buildings having meetings and, uh, you know, doing outreach and trying to convince people that this is a great idea. But when it and and I'm speaking from limited experience. I mean, there there may be. I, I had Marcus Kaufman from Oregon on the podcast, and it certainly sounds like there's much more activity there uh, with a much more healthy and robust forest industry uh, than we have here in New Mexico. So, is this just a, a geographic difference, or am, what I am a, what am I observing here is also happening elsewhere? I would say that what you're observing is happening around the country, but there are definite pockets of entrepreneurship uh, coming to life. And the, the, the biggest of it, 
you see here in the southeast where companies have come in, most of them from Europe, have put in these very large-scale pellet facilities and uh, are able to make the product here in the U.S., put it on uh, uh, seagoing cargo ships and take it to Britain or Amsterdam or wherever else. Um, that, and I will tell you, though, that the reason that is happening is because of a price that is being paid in Europe that is significantly above the price being paid anywhere else in the world. So that some would argue that, well, that market is only there because of the subsidy and uh, people shouldn't use it. Well, most markets have a subsidy of one kind or another. We still have subsidies on oil development in the United States. And oil, until the last few weeks, has not been an issue that people were too worried about them not making enough money to be able to uh, stay in business. The other issue, though, uh, I I think another macro issue that has thwarted the wood to energy space, there, there are multiple factors, and I'll just mention a few of them. Number one, it's viewed as an energy source of the past. It's very hard to make it sexy. Uh, People want to go to solar and wind, and that sounds great until you remember, oh, yeah, the sun only shines half the time, and that's um, assuming you have no cloudy days, but at night there's no sun. Wind doesn't blow all the time. Uh, So if you want what is called base capacity or base load, you've got to go to coal or nuclear or hydro or woody biomass. And so that's the role it can play, but... You've got to overcome that first that it's uh, we're talking about doing it in the way we did it decades ago, high polluting and destructive. That is not the modern with the energy opportunity. Number two, as a country that without a strong energy policy, uh, we we tend to strand investments, and I think we're about to see it again. We In our eight years, one of the operating philosophies we've had as an organization is that one of the change factors that we must operate in is the end of cheap oil. Even during the recession, oil never dropped below $70 a barrel. In most recessions prior to that, it went to 10 or $20. Well, here we are post-recession, and uh, the world is beginning to come back alive, and oil goes from 150 to 100 to 75 and now below $50 a barrel. Well, again, there, there's market manipulation there. Some of the stories you read say the Saudis are doing this. Part of it's because of fracking in the U.S. that's opened up so many new markets. But the problem is fracking uh, is not going to make money at $50 a barrel. It was doing fine at 75 and $100 a barrel. So without a consistent energy policy that, that sort of puts a, uh, a floor under these kinds of investments, you can go out and spend millions or billions of dollars, and then when the short-term market blips come, all that money's lost. And I'll I'll give you one example that I've read about. I've done some work down in Brazil, but I I don't know this case specifically, Frank, but uh, prior to them being uh, a democracy, so I'm not advocating that we move away from democracy, but the former administration in Brazil said, we're going to move to energy independence. And we're going to use uh, biomass, primarily sugarcane and ethanol, and we're going to become independent. And they stayed with it no matter what the price of oil went, and it cost them a lot of money. When oil would be cheap, they would have been better off going and buying cheap imported oil. 
but they stayed on that road and they were successful. We don't have that kind of policy and we don't have that kind of will as consumers. And I'm not out advocating we should pay more than market price, but we need to recognize that the energy security of the future is not going to be the same one as the past. Coal, for all of its downsides, had a big upside in that. You could build a coal-fired plant, you could rail it in by trains, and you could keep that rascal going 24-7 without any problem. The energy future uh, that I predict will come is going to be a much more distributed, localized. So in your part of the world uh, and in the, the southwest in general, solar is going to be a much better uh, product than it is in the northeast. Well, the northeast uh, is an energy island. It uh, Now, some of the fracking is going on in Pennsylvania, so maybe natural gas will be a big part of their future. But solar is probably not going to be their top thing, but they're a huge wood basket. Uh, they always have been a heavy user of wood, and if they can replace uh, number two and number six heating oil with wood, they they recycle their money within their own economy, and they use a less environmentally um, destructive fuel to meet their heating needs. So we're seeing entrepreneurs come in, but another macro problem is is that wood to energy is typically a one-off, whereas you can go out and build a coal-fired plant and do the same one all across the country. Wood to energy facilities and the wood resource becomes an issue. And then finally, our raw material is much more difficult to deal with than the raw material for other facilities. Um, wood on the stump is 50% moisture. You don't want to haul water a long distance. That is a, a, an economic uh, killer. And so we're going to have to build smaller facilities closer to the resource if we're going to make wood a viable long-term answer, or we're going to have to create energy-dense and rich products that can be shipped and stored over long distances. And that's one of the promises that potentially torrefied wood can handle. It's another promise that liquefied, so ethanols can handle. But the the, the biggest problem I see, and I'm a, uh, I'm a novice at this, Frank. I've, I've worked on it a lot, but I am not an expert in, in this arena. The biggest problem is going to be that price floor that says, if you make these investments for the right reasons and to help America become energy independent and to to keep energy dollars within a community, um, then when the markets do a short-term turn like they've done now, uh, all is not lost. And there's why I don't. I think you don't see venture capitalists running toward uh, wood to energy for two reasons. One, it's not sexy. Number two, it's very um, at risk to be stranded with radical changes in other energy markets like oil and natural gas. So if you were to meet a person who is entrepreneurial, has good business skills, um, and is looking at this marketplace and saying, I want to play here, uh, this is interesting to me, uh, regardless of you know, where they are in their life or what their connections are, what would you, where would you recommend they start? What should they do? How should they approach this? 
Well, it, it, and it depends on where they are on the spectrum. Right now, there's money to be made in New England in conversion of oil-based uh, units at uh, homes and uh, smaller industrial facilities to wood, and that can be done right now. One of the problems is, is that because most systems are one-off, it costs more to put a wood-to-energy facility in than it does a competing product. We've got to bring that cost down. And the way we've got to do that is through standardization of the engineering and planning and the equipment. Uh, and I'm not saying we want one size fits all, but we've got to be able to have off the shelf solutions rather than everything having to be custom for the, uh, the need. Number two is, and one of the challenges that we in the endowment are working on is, there, there have been lots of efforts and lots of money thrown at these issues so it has not been a lack of money in the past. Our belief is it's been a lack of uh, targeted investment and follow-through. And uh, the, for instance, there is the work we've begun to do with the USDA Forest Service and the Georgia Southern University's Herdy Center for Advanced Materials Handling as our two partners starting out in what we call the Consortium for Advanced Wood Energy Solutions. We're saying we need to really double down and look at torrefaction, which is one of the highest promising potential to address parts of the world like you have, where you're not near ports, uh, you have very low value wood, uh, you know, from uh, as you go on up north of you, and you get into the pine beetle killed areas, lots of small diameter dead and dying and standing timber that needs to be removed if we're going to reduce the uh, probability of catastrophic wildfires, well, you can't haul that a long distance. So we believe if we can do some concentrated work and prove the potential of torrefied wood as a drop-in fuel to be used in co-firing and uh, coal-fired plants, then because that material can be shipped long distances, can potentially be stored outside like coal, that that could create a big enough market uh, and give a economic outlet for that raw material rather than a public taxpayer go in. And, and right now what we're doing literally is trees are being cut down and piled and burned in the woods at those very high costs that I mentioned before of 500 to $20,000 an acre, depending on where it is. That is not sustainable. So what we see, Frank, is a lot of great effort going on, but most of it is happening in stovepipes. When we started our work on torrefaction, one of the first things we tried to do is identify all the players, and we're finding that there are a lot of good entrepreneurs out there doing good work, but they don't want to share with each other. Each believes that they're going to have the big breakthrough and they're going to capture the market. Well, in any new industry, you've got to create the new product and show that it can perform and, and break into the market and get some standards around it where like if I buy a gallon of gas in Texas or I buy a gallon of gas in New York City, I don't have to worry about when it says 87 octane, I'm getting the same thing and my car's going to run. Well, right now, we can't say that around some of these products. So that needs to be done through a consortium and co-investment of government and industry and entrepreneurs working together. And that somewhat goes against the grain of many folks who believe that, no, you need to go off and do this in your garage and you're going to break through and become the next Google or Microsoft. I, I, I just believe 
that the best way to get there is to build the knowledge, to prove the materials, to get the customers, such as the, uh, the, the electricity producers, to say, yep, we want it, and this is the type of fuel we want. And then the private sector steps in and will make the investments because they know they can produce a product that the market wants. They, they're going to have a better feel for what the price is. Um, but right now, we're in that what's often called the valley of death. We have proven at the lab scale that this material will work and that it has the environmental benefits that we're talking about. There have been some very limited uh, tests at the commercial scale to show that it will work. And we're at a point where some large utilities are saying, give me so many tens of thousands of tons so I can do commercial burns, but I'm not willing to help subsidize you to build the facility to give me those tons. So we're at a standoff where somebody has got to take the risk, put up the capital to be that uh, tip of the spear to prove out the, the market, to prove out what kind of materials would be economically viable in the marketplace. Knowing that, once that's done, a lot of private competitors are going to jump in, and it, there's not going to be one dominant player likely. There are going to be a lot of producers that are going to make money, and of course, like any other startup, a lot of them are going to fail. We are trying to put our efforts with this consortium behind that piece of it. Go from the lab to the applied, prove out the market, prove out what the market needs, and we believe that private capital and entrepreneurs will will rush in to that void, and it'll go on its own. So I guess in part, that's part of the answer to my question in that, you know, why why do I see the dynamic that I see? And as you described in this valley of death, uh, there's kind of a dearth of, of groups that can play in that arena, <clears throat> and the groups that can play in that arena are the ones that you see playing in that arena. Well, it, it's an arena not many folks want to play in. Frank, it's um, researchers uh, play in a uh, test and prove something at the lab scale. Uh, Investors want to come in when they know there's a proven market and a profit margin and uh, there's a customer standing ready to buy so many of your widgets at a fixed price. And we're not there yet. We're in between those two things. And there are a lot of places that were like that in the wood energy space. We know right now there, the, the Forest Service and others have done a great job of working with a number of communities to convert schools and hospitals and VA facilities off of heating oil or propane to wood energy. The problem with that is it is a very slow, very costly process. If we want to address the burgeoning health forest health problems we have in America, we need a robust market that has scale that can draw from those forests, that low-value material, in an economically efficient way and sell into a large market. While that school conversion, and, and I love them where they've been done, is great for that local community, and it might have created a couple of new jobs in logging and a, a new job in the school and maintaining the facility and saving the school money. We don't have the luxury of decades to move slow like that. We have to address in the near term these kinds of challenges, and it has to be a market-based initiative. Our government 
no government can be expected to fill all of this, but the government does have a role. And that's why we believe that consortia is where the government and the private sector, both for-profit and non-profit, all have to come together. And that's the model we're trying to create. It's been done before. It's been very successful. And for some reason, and I think part of it is all of the wonderful stories coming out of high tech of the one guy in his garage becoming a billionaire two years later. Um, well, that, that's great, and those are wonderful stories. It's probably not going to happen in this space. The, the hill to climb here is much greater, and it's going to require a lot more collaboration and sharing of information if we're going to be successful. And, you know, the interesting thing is uh, out of all the different industries in the United States, you know, that's the software realm and the technology realm is the one area where we where we hear these stories. Um, but all the other industrial areas of uh, in the United States, we hear quite the opposite. So it's it's curious, I guess, that we've glommed on to this sort of uh, spectacular success story and put blinders on, in a way, to, to the reality of what's happening elsewhere. Well, Frank, it, it strikes me. I live in a lottery state. Uh, I did not vote for the lottery, and I don't play the lottery. But it's somewhat that American mentality that uh, you, you put in a little bit, and you're going to hit it and, it, and you'll be set for life. Well, yeah, a few do that. But if you look at the odds... Sun shining brightly here today, the odds of me being struck by lightning if I walk out in my parking lot are higher than winning the lottery. And yet we keep looking for that easy fix when if you look back at the history of America, it's the sweat equity that made the change. And we're talking about the need for sweat equity in this particular space. There is enormous potential. And this is one of the discouraging things to me. I'm an optimist long term, but I can get discouraged short term. Wood built America. We're one of the largest producers of wood products of all kinds. We're one of the largest consumers of wood products of all kinds. And yet we still have about the same amount of forest we had in 1900. Markets keep forest on the landscape. Without them is when you lose them. Well, since 1990, we've lost more than 40% of all the pulp and paper mills in the United States. And they're not going to come back. We've lost probably a third of the sawmills. And they're not going to come back. As we shift, we still have an abundant resource. We've got to be finding new products for the future. Some of those energy products are going to be important because they address the very low value end of the production stream of raw material. But there's work going on at USDA Forest Service Forest Products Lab and other places that show that if you boil wood down to its essence, to the nanoscale, one one-hundred-thousandth the width of a human hair, that you reconstruct those products out of that natural material and they take on novel properties. They have enormous strengths greater than steel. They have the capacity to create products that are, are transparent but ballistic. You, you, and these are products of the 21st and 22nd century here where we're going back and saying nature's factory, the tree, gives us the resource but we can convert it into products that have enormously high value and high uses in aerospace and automotive and electronics. So there's huge potential, but here's the concern I have. We as a sector, the forest product sector, invest on average about, and this is pre-recession, about one half of 1% in R&D. 
the average manufacturing industry in America, not high tech, the average manufacturing industry invests 3.4% of sales, seven times more than we do. If we don't invest and innovate, we're not going to take advantage of those new market potentials, whether they be new energy products, new nano-based products, or chemicals. A tree, a, a tree is a, an amazing chemical factory. I think there's something like 200 different chemicals and compounds that come from a tree. We've been extracting some of those for decades. But there are newer ways and new products that we can use. And one of the things we do know is that if you build off of nature's building blocks, things tend to have less environmental impact than if you try to build them through uh, synthetic-type approaches. And I'm not saying all chemicals are bad. I'm just saying nature gives us wonderful building blocks that we need to be using. So the future, I think, is bright. There will be entrepreneurs and there will be investors who step up and take advantage of it. I'm just hoping we do it before it's too late because the forests of America are bountiful. It's one of the greatest blessings we have as a nation on this planet are our forests for their, um, for their beauty, for the diversity that they yield in wildlife habitats, for the recreational opportunity, for the fact that Two out of three Americans get their drinking water from a forest every day, and then you've got the products that build our homes, the paper we use in our offices, and then all of these nano products of the future. We just need to concentrate and rebuild a new mechanism to pull together to, to jointly invest in R&D for the future, government, nonprofits, and for-profits. And if we do that, I think that future will be bright, and I think we'll seize it. Well, um, we could go on like this for quite a long time, but but one thing that occurs to me, um, if I'm a venture capitalist and I look at the state of New Mexico and say, okay, well, you certainly have the material and abundant supply, um, but your infrastructure, one, and your workforce are severely deficient. Um, you know, call me in 20 years when you get these things worked out, and then we'll talk. Uh, but like you said, we don't have 20 years. What does this mean for a state like New Mexico? Well, you're you're addressing another one of our concerns. It was a project that we've been trying, and uh, not everything we do is successful. I, I've shared with you a couple of the successes on the checkoffs, and I could share with you another long list of successes we've had in our eight short years. But one of the things we were trying uh, ties very much to what you said there about education, because we believe that Innovation and productivity are only going to come if we have an educated uh, citizenry that can do those high-tech jobs everywhere, not just in high-tech centers like Silicon Valley. They need to be doing them in rural South Carolina and rural New Mexico. We were working on a project, and and sadly, I I believe it's going to uh, fail, but uh, we are holding out hope and doing everything we can where we would create a wood to energy facility that would generate a significant number of jobs in a rural community that has very high unemployment. It would create markets for low-value wood, uh, especially for the one remaining sawmill in that community to help make it more viable long-term. But the icing on the cake was we were acting as proxy for the community and going to own 40% of that facility and then give back 100% of the net revenues over the 20 to 30 year power purchase agreement to that community for the purpose of education long term. 
and what were called matching child savings accounts. And I, I know we don't have time to go into this, but bottom line, the idea is if you take a low-income family, right now they're probably not talking to their kids a lot about going to school post-secondary. But if you begin working with those families and help them save for their child to go on to college, and that college could be barber college, plumbing school, uh, technical college, or a major university, and you start those conversations at an early age and you help them put aside a little money, it changes that dynamic and the numbers of kids that will go on. And we've got evidence from a number of studies around the world that those things will work. And again, it has to be a joint effort. And so what we were proposing to do was model this with the endowment being the one to put in the money originally and share the benefits with that community, but to show over the long term what could be done. So we know we've got to invest in education, but we get calls all the time about you need to help us on this with education, you need to help us this on health care, you need to help with this on infrastructure for roads. Everything we do at the endowment is forest-centric. We saw an opportunity there to use the forest to create economic opportunity, to create jobs, but also to address long-term educational needs. So we're willing to give that one a try. So uh, lift up a prayer for that one, Frank, that uh, maybe it'll be salvaged, but uh, we work very hard on it and have hit a lot of walls, and sadly, it may not happen. Are we are our hopes and dreams for this uh, wood biomass in, uh, industry in the United States, are, are these going to be destroyed by uh, extremely catastrophic wildfires, uh, comparable or perhaps larger than some of the wildfires that we've seen in, in recent years? Well, clearly, we, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to study the data and see that every year, as we've come over the last two or three decades, the amount of land we're losing to wildfire is increasing. We talked about some of the reasons for that. Uh, some of it is our stands are now overstocked with low-value, uh, small-diameter material. Uh, we've done too good of a job of preventing smaller fires that would have made the stands healthy. Without markets the trend we're seeing is not going to change. So, yes, we're going to lose lots of acres, lots of value. And sadly, it's not just the trees, but often these catastrophic fires destroy the, the duff layer and the soil, make them uh, significantly reduce the, uh, the productivity of that land. They have huge impact on the watersheds. We saw it with a wildfire near Denver that did $150 million to the Denver watershed, uh, to their water treatment facility. Um, that's why I'm impatient, Frank, and that we need these solutions now. Uh, I talk to scientists and I remind them, science needs to work at the speed of need. It doesn't do us any good for a wonderful scientist to go off and say, uh, you know, I, I've got unlimited time to work on this issue. Time is our most limiting quality, quantity on this particular issue, and we've got to find new ways to invest together to advance some solutions. And they have to be economically viable, they have to be socially acceptable, and of course they have to be environmentally friendly and uh, productive or they're not going to persist. USDA Rural Development uh, is primarily a loan program these days. And uh, actually, the loans are done through banks that charge upwards of five, six, seven percent interest. 
in a very low interest rate environment, um, why not just loan to these rural communities at 0%, and to develop these technologies? I mean, wouldn't that be something that would just give a huge boost to this industry? Well, it will, and there are people taking advantage of those loans, and there are some low-interest loans, and literally we have made some as the endowment. We've made what are called program-related investments, where we make low-interest loans. Ours, uh, prior to the lower rates that have been, we're in the 3% range, so very low-interest rates. Obviously, we're not making anywhere on that money what we could by keeping it in the market. Um, so we acknowledge that that's part of it. Um, it, 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 we're back to Frank. If you list all the challenges, uh, you, you'll you'll go out and just wring your hands and won't do anything. There are lots of pieces that need to be moved, and the financing piece that you talked about is one. We recently had a project where we were working with some folks, and and again, the the rates we could not step in. It was so big we could not step in and be the banker for it. And the institutions that wanted a loan wanted such high rates that there was no return. So, um, you know, these things do have to stand on their their economic uh, footing. But also, we've got to look at the uh, and somehow be able to account for the other advantages that come if you're taking people off of uh, welfare and giving them a job, putting them on the tax base. If you're removing wood that currently we would be paying. Uh, tax dollars to just cut down and burn in the forest, and now we've created an economic outlet for that. Somehow we've got to be able to account for some of those benefits and have them accrue to these private sector facilities to help them get over the hump of that valley of death and into the point where they are standalone economically viable. Any concluding remarks or uh, concepts, ideas, technologies, anything else that I didn't ask you about that, you, that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, uh, Frank, as you said, we could talk all day, and as you see, I don't have any trouble talking. I, I think this is just an issue. My message is around collaboration. It's the hardest work in the world to do. We need a new model in America. We are the country that invented innovation. We're fast letting that go by the wayside with the belief that, oh, it's the government's job. No, no, it's not the government's job. They need to be out of that. It's private industry's job. It needs to be all of our jobs. And when we start tackling a problem like this, it's so important to America. How do we keep forests on the landscape and keep them healthy? It is both a government job and a private citizen job and a private industry job to come together and do that. And we've gotten away from those models of collaboration and gone more the um, the combative approach. We've made it very difficult uh, in some places to even site a facility, even though siting that facility would have far more benefits uh, economically and ecologically than uh, not having it there. You talked about infrastructure. We've lost a lot of infrastructure. It's hard to put that back. So my message is, Let's look for ways to come together, um, put our egos aside a little bit, and say, if we're able to create a new product and a new industry, I'll get my share of the benefits for that. But this idea that I'm going to keep all this secret and I'm the only one that's going to make something off of it, that's not going to be productive long term. So, Frank, I appreciate you letting me speak with you today. Uh, this is an important topic. It's, it's core to who the endowment is. We work on a lot of issues from 
water to creating markets to wood to energy to asset development for disadvantaged populations and other things. Um, and um, all of these and many more are important if we're going to uh, have a healthy forest uh, for the future generations. That concludes my interview with Carlton Owen of the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities. And I don't know about you, but I personally thought that uh, Carlton is a really great spokesman for wood biomass energy and a really uh, eloquent spokesman both for his organization and for this emerging industry, although uh, clearly it's fraught with some difficulties and pitfalls and many obstacles. Um, I would like to see this industry succeed, and I think it could create a lot of economic opportunity for many people in our country. One of the things I noticed in Carlton's concluding remarks in his call for collaboration is that he was basically uh, calling, he said that we need a new model for collaboration. And in many ways, uh, I see what he was calling for was an open source approach to developing wood biomass energy and technologies in our country. And he's probably not all that familiar with uh, the open source methodology or approach to uh, both hardware and software, uh, but he would probably be well served by familiarizing himself with that approach. And I know that uh, this approach is probably not all that welcome amongst many industry circles and uh, even government uh, funders in our country, unfortunately. Uh, but if it were, maybe we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have in developing these technologies collaboratively. And as many of you who listen to this podcast for a long time know, I have been an advocate of an open source uh, approach to developing appropriate technologies for many different industries for many, many years. And I have interviewed many people who are doing great work in that realm. Unfortunately, uh, it's a realm that is woefully underfunded and woefully undercapitalized and uh, probably woefully underpublicized as well, I would think. And in some ways, it is uh, losing ground in the software space, although in other ways, uh, particularly when we see things like Arduino and open hardware technologies, uh, it's gaining ground. So it's always hard to tell exactly where some of these things are going to go. Anyway, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Carlton Owen for joining me uh, for this episode of the podcast. And I would like to thank all of you, the listeners, for tuning in to this episode. And I have no idea what comes next as... I have mentioned many, many times now I am in uh, Bolivia, South America, and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing at this moment uh, that you're listening to this podcast. So hopefully you will uh, be following the blog, and at this point I will have published uh, some good information for you about Bolivia on the agroinnovations.com blog. And hopefully very soon you will see some new podcast material in the meantime, please send me your comments. You can click on the contact link on uh, the website. You can also, every uh, blog post and podcast post has a comment section and a comment thread, and I just love when uh, people get engaged in some interesting and varied debates on those comment threads. Uh, I, I really enjoy those. So if you have any comments to share about this or any other recent or previous episode of the podcast or any blog posts, Please post those. I, uh, like I said, love to read those. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast have been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast, and I am your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.